Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with my buddy, Zach Reiner. Zach served 11 years in the U.S. Air Force as a combat controller before medically retiring as a result of injuries sustained during combat. Inspired by his own road to recovery, he set out to become a physical therapist and will receive his Doctor of Physical Therapy from Duke University in the spring. We caught up at his home in North Carolina. I developed a passion for being in that environment, and that's what kind of drove me towards like wanting to be a physical therapist, was like, how do we get this guy or gal or whoever that has suffered an injury, how do we get them to improve their quality of life and maybe help them find you know some, some better self-worth themselves? We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Our first two guests were from Wisconsin, and uh, I had originally hoped to get you like earlier on last year. Yeah, we couldn't schedule it, but one of them said that he wasn't surprised at that. That I was that, what? that, that uh, first three guests would be from Wisconsin. He said uh. people from Wisconsin are friggin' great, and uh, <laughs> I when I went to basic training, it seemed like everybody was from Ohio, yeah, or the South, but. Uh, do you know a lot of other Wisconsin vets? Um, there's a few, um, not like a ton. Some older guys that are from Wisconsin, and then um, like there's a couple guys that were on the team that came up a little bit after me. But yeah, not like a ton of Wisconsin vets. There's oh. a fair amount though, you know. Yeah, you had a couple. Like some of your inspiration probably came from family, right? Yeah, for sure. So like my grandpa served, my uncle served, two uncles served, and then. Um, yeah, that was just, you know, my grandpa was in World War II, spent time in the South Pacific, and, uh, you know, he was in anti-aircraft artillery. And so I just, I don't know, I always kind of like emulated him and, um, you know, just the service that he had and try to get stories from him and, and pick his brain a little bit. Um, and it was just, you know, it just sounded so adventurous, yeah. kind of. And it was like, man, living in Wisconsin when I hadn't even seen the ocean, it was like, maybe I need to get out and do something <laughs> like that. What part? Like northern? Uh, I don't know. I yeah, only know where Green Bay is, and that's it. Yeah, so it's north central part of the state, like little tiny town, Medford, four thousand people. Um, but yeah, not a terrible spot to grow up, I guess, if you don't mind living on a farm and yeah. doing those things. You uh, are the one who taught me how to play Hammerschlagen. Yeah, yeah, it's a good game. <laughs> yeah, you want to explain it? So we make a bunch of different rules. Uh, the way that we play it is you have to hit in other people's nails. Oh. So you get a ball peen hammer and then you're using the round end and you get one swing and it's, you know, if you hit, you get to hit till you miss. So you get to keep tapping or whatever. As soon as you miss, then you pass the hammer to the next guy. And once your nail is kind of sunk, you lose. Um, and that's, that's how we play it. It's a pretty fun drinking game for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, growing up where I did, we didn't have a bunch of like just logs sitting around with yeah. nails and ball peen hammers. Yeah. So we did. <laughs> <laughs> Any other history in your family? Uh, for military history yeah. stuff? I don't think so. Um, yep. Grandpa and two uncles and, you know, I had an uncle that served in Vietnam he actually passed away from Agent Orange exposure related illness stuff. Um, oh shit! Huh? Yeah, and uh, it was crazy because, like, you know, in a 
in a 10 year period, he went from being healthy and working and everything to, you know, end of life was completely bedridden, couldn't do anything himself, was eating his meals through a straw. Like, I mean, it was just, yeah, pretty sad to see that deterioration, you know? And this is like number of years afterwards. It's just oh, like, yeah. Yep. Like a fucking sleeper cell or what? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think he had like any, like, foretelling like huge warning signs it was just all of a sudden like that you know the years of exposure just kind of caught up to him and then you know it just deteriorated quickly jesus what made you go air force instead of uh any other of your enlistment options yeah so that one's that one's kind of tough so basically it was the guarantee that i could go to dive and halo school and at the time, you know, to go be a SEAL, you couldn't go directly. They didn't have a direct BUDS enlistment. Like you had to enlist in big Navy and then try out for BUDS or whatever. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't want any part in that. You like, don't want to like uh, break your leg and then be a cook on a boat? No, definitely not. You know, I mean, I would have got to see the ocean at least. So there's <laughs> that. You're the first controller that we've had. We've had one other Air Force guy. Actually, he's a air traffic controller. Oh, okay. But... Uh, yeah, so maybe it's kind of like a good, uh, if they've listened to Brady's episode, you know, talk about, well, one combat control is like your expertise, but then like the two main jobs within air force, uh, SF. Yeah. So combat control, like our job is to do all the air to ground stuff. So anything that's flying overhead, like we kind of integrate with the army or Navy team that we're supporting. And then with pararescue, like their primary job is combat search and rescue or that technical rescue kind of expertise. Yeah. So um, they kind of marry us together. So we do a lot of cross training, um, which is kind of cool. You know, got to got to do way more medical training than I thought that I would have ever gotten in the military without having a medical kind of, you know, military occupation specialty. Yeah. So it was good. I think uh, I, I kind of liked the fact that like you could be so very different like pjs don't always attract like oh man we might have to edit this out so pjs might uh cater to a different type of individual that wants to like save people and rescue people and you know put it have that like um, a hearts and minds type yeah whereas like combat control people that come into it is typically like oh let's go you know drop bombs on bad guys and kill yeah. lots of lots of people so there there are like a little bit of you know varying mindsets sometimes between between the populations but i think they marry well together yeah well all the controllers i know have like drive monster trucks and have pirate tattoos everywhere so yeah. What's it like uh, coming straight into the military into a pipeline? Because it's like a couple years before you actually get to do your job. Yeah. So like you're coming in 2004 because we've talked to other people who came in and they're like, shit, man, I'm going to miss the war. Yeah. Uh, you know, sadly, they were very wrong. Mm -hmm. But like coming straight in and, and it's kind of like it's almost like going to like a degree program you know, right. before you, before you actually get to a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can remember like going through training and like being focused in on the news and the war and everything that was going on and being like, man, maybe I am going to miss it, you know, because it is, it was like two and a half years worth of training before I got to, you know, be qualified in my job. So, you know, it was at the end of the day, it was like, well, you know, you were kind of seeing or 
hearing bits and pieces about guys that were doing stuff overseas, like in our job, like doing some really cool stuff. And so that kind of motivated me to stay the course, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it is like a big, a big mountain to climb when you're, you know, 18, just made it through basic training. And now you've got two and a half years of selection and training in front of you and to try and keep that motivation the whole time. Um, you know, it, it is a little bit, difficult but the nice thing was being in the air force component at least there's it's so small so you know like we started one of our training programs with like 35 people and eight of us graduated that and so like that the eight of us that were together like i'm still really close with those people and yeah you know it's it's pretty awesome that you're able to go through and know everyone on a bit of a personal level um compared to you know, maybe other units where you're just kind of a name and a number and there's not a lot of, not a lot of depth to relationships sometimes, you know? Yeah. Part of your job is working with other units. Yeah. So kind of like, but I don't want to say it sounds crappy, but like a kid without a home or, you know, showing up. Hey, Always man, a redheaded hey, stepchild. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm Zach. I'm your Air Force guy. Yeah. What's up? Yeah, and that's always super difficult, especially because there's a stigma associated with Air Force among the other branches. So you're always, I feel like you're always having to prove yourself. And I feel like people, um, you know, I, I think later on in my career, like it, it got a lot better just with experience and stuff. Like people understood that, you know, I kind of had some knowledge and some experience. But early on in my career, that was something I definitely struggled with was how do I prove to these people that I'm as capable at my job as they are at theirs and that we can integrate together and like do, do good things and, and, you know, be successful. Um, so I'd say there is a little bit more scrutiny when you're, you know, an attachment to a team as compared to being like someone that's, you know, intrinsic to that team. Yeah. Um, but I think, it also forces you to put your best foot forward every day because it is kind of like being in that selection phase where someone's always going to question what you're doing. I see a lot of that in what I do professionally now, which I don't really go into on the show, but having to be like a, a rapport builder from day one and, and kind of see what the working dynamic is on the team and how you can fit in, you know, mm -hmm. it's your job too. Yep. It's not like, it's not like there's a team of, SF guys and a team of Air Force guys that join together. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's the one. Yep. Or or with a PJ, yeah. team, you know, you might yep. get that guy too. Yeah. And then a lot of times, like, you just didn't, you didn't get your controller or you didn't mm -hmm. get your PJ. Right? Yeah. And you have to try to try to fill that spot, but it's always, I could tell you it's always suboptimal, mm -hmm. right? You go, you send a guy to a course to like mimic one aspect of your job um, to get by but you always do want the guy who's the expert. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, like there's, there's some short-term memory stuff in the military too, where it's like, what have you done for me lately? And, you know, when you're not able to be out there and getting in it and being able to drop bombs every day, sometimes, you know, like you do feel a little bit of that, like, what is my purpose on this team right now? If I'm not able to, you know, be doing my job all the time, but you know, I had, I had great experiences with all with all the teams that I supported, and I, I think we definitely developed a lot of mutual respect. Yeah. Well, I mean, anyone who Googles you knows that, you know, eventually you're, you know, uh, 2008 
uh, Battle of Shock Valley, right? Like this is what you're known for yeah. publicly. What was that? What was that team like? It was that like early towards your tenure or deployment? Yeah. So or, that uh, was actually my my first deployment, and we were about three months into the deployment when that mission kind of went down. And, you know, the team that I was with had already been in country for a while. Um, so they, you know, were kind of tight knit already. And then I did experience a lot of that, you know, new Air Force guy deployment. You know, he hasn't been with us since, you know, they had a lot of those guys were on their first deployment as well, but they had at least a couple of months in country. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I definitely felt some of that as an outsider attaching to that team. But, um, you know, I think I think we did made the best of it. I know that, you know, I could do like a voiceover and read your citation and all that or, or kind of like summarize the battle. Hey, this is Matt here to give you a little context to the story that Zach and I didn't really cover explicitly in the episode. In April 2008, Zach was serving with Special Forces Detachment 3336 in northeastern Afghanistan. On April 6, 2008, the team would become engaged in what's known as the Battle of Shock Valley. As they infiltrated for their mission by helicopter and navigated near-vertical mountain terrain to reach their objective, the team was met by a well-coordinated and deadly ambush. Despite being shot in the leg and trapped on a cliff, Zack continued to engage the enemy with his rifle while coordinating eight fighter aircraft and four attack helicopters to provide close air support on more than 50 attack runs throughout the seven-hour firefight, several within 100 meters of his own position to avoid being overrun. For his actions on that day, Zack was awarded the Air Force Cross, this is the Air Force's second highest medal for valor, only to the Medal of Honor. He is the second ever and first living combat controller to receive the award. He was 21 years old. Ten other members of his team were awarded the Silver Star, two of which, Ron Schurer and Matt Williams, were upgraded to the Medal of Honor. What's most incredible to me is that no Americans lost their lives during the battle, which is a testament to how these guys were able to do their jobs and work together to survive. As you all know, I'm not a historian, so I wanted to give you a little background on our conversation, but I encourage you to do a little more reading uh, if this interests you or if you didn't know about Zach or his teammates. All right, back to the episode. So I guess like without recounting or play-by-play -play of the battle, what'd you see that day and what do you, what do you like carry with you or what would you impart on people who have heard that story so like i think there's a, there's a lot of things surrounding that mission that we won't go into details about pointing fingers or anything like that like i don't think that there's necessarily a, a finger that you can point and say you know for whatever reason we should put the responsibility of this on someone yeah but for whatever reason we were in a very tactically bad situation that you know you history has taught us you just don't assault an objective uphill um right. you know whenever you can but i think the the greatest thing that came out of that was just the the bravery and the heroism by everyone on the team that day to do their job to ensure that we all kind of made it out of there alive and obviously we lost one of our interpreters that day um and uh we had some commandos wounded as well but um you know it's just incredible like you look at a guy like john wayne walding who 
took his bootlaces and tied them to his thigh after his leg had been severed on the battlefield and was able to use his gun as a crutch and make it down the mountain. Like, I mean, it's just, just the perseverance and just the incredible, like never quit mentality, like was really there that day. Pretty uh, fitting. A guy named John Wayne ties his leg to a gun to make a new leg. Yeah. He's actually born on the 4th of July too. No shit. Yeah. Oh, this guy was just made for it. Yeah. Yeah. How would you feel if they ever made a movie about that? Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> feel good about it. Not at all. Like, I don't, I just, I don't think it would capture the way that it went down and Hollywood would try to spin it a certain way. Yeah. And I just, I think it would take away from a lot of, a lot of the events that happened that day. You know, if you tried to recreate something like that. Yeah. I think logistically it'd be hard to have Mark Wahlberg play all 12 guys on the team. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. There's be a lot of scene cuts. So I guess naturally after that, what's it, what's it like being the Air Force cross guy? Uh, so that was kind of hard right after. Um, it kind of happened because, you know, they wanted me to do a bunch of like dog and pony type of stuff. And so yeah. like going around and you know, being cheeky with people and, you know, it just wasn't something that I was interested in at the time. And so, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I didn't do it for too long and I was able to volunteer and get right back out on the next deployment and, you know, just kind of put that behind me. But, um, it was kind of funny when I showed up for my next rotation, um, I went to Iraq first and when I showed up, there were, uh, you know, pictures of me in the urinal with like a little target on it so people could piss on the Air Force guy. It was kind of funny. It was, it was actually yeah, pretty yeah, funny. Yeah. Nice. I heard of stories of someone, uh, someone mildly defacing your uh, bronze bus. <laughs> yeah. Which we don't have to go into, but also a good friend of yours. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but when you think about it, like, when you went through your pipeline, so I just remember going through basic training and get like your soldier's handbook. Yep. And all the front pages are all the Medal of Honor recipients. And it's meant to like inspire you. You're in this like brand new environment, right? Both of us were 18. And to really kind of like start seeing what your purpose is, uh, being inspired. Did you, when you first came in, read about a guy like, John Chapman and like what impact did his story have on you? And then how do you consider the impact of your story on people that come in now? Yeah. So, you know, I I don't, I don't know like how, how, you know, people perceive my story. Like I hope that it's, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that like the actions that I did on that day were like extraordinarily heroic. I think I did my job and I was just at the right place at the right time. Like, I think I could have been substituted for any other combat controller with the training that we have. And, you know, the outcome would have probably been the same, Yeah. but hearing, you know, Chapman's story, and this was while I was still kind of in high school. Um, and I had kind of known, at that point that I was, you know, going to be a combat controller. And so like, this was in the media and it was the first time that like you ever saw like combat control in the news, you know? So for, for me, it was like, wow, I can latch onto that guy and what, what he did. And hopefully like, that's 
you know, it kind of reinforced like, wow, you know, I want to, I want to go do that. That's, that's the job that I want to do. So I think if you can take anything away from it, it's just, um, yeah, I don't, it's, you just want to perform and be better when you hear about heroic stories of other people, you know, it's like, you you kind of wonder like whether or not you have it in you to do, to act in a certain way or do certain things that they would have done and i guess my career i spent like trying always to be that guy that did the right thing i know that there was uh let me know if you're comfortable with me telling this but our our buddy has a tattoo place which i've been bugging him to get on the podcast yeah but i think he's been ducking me I yeah don't know if he likes talking Oh, he's a storyteller for sure. Oh, well, in you know, public forum. Yeah. Uh, so you were getting a tattoo, and there was a kid who came to the shop, and he asked the owner, he goes, is that Zach Reiner? He goes, uh, yeah, why? He goes, and the kid basically was like, he's the reason I joined the Air Force. Did you, I mean, you got to talk to that kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um and it's just like, it's, it's, it's one of those positions that just makes you feel awkward inside. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're happy that you had an influence on someone's life like that. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, man, I don't know that I'm worthy of that sort of like life changing event, you know, like, so it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it definitely makes you feel humble and, um, a little bit awkward inside. <laughs> yeah. I think six deployments total. We also went to Haiti. Yeah. How was that? It was like kind of a different mission. Yeah, it was a very different mission. So we went down there like right after the earthquake. And basically our job was just to run the airfield because the tower had been damaged and everything. So they didn't have any air traffic control. So we ran the airfield for about two weeks. And then I was able to stay on for an additional two weeks with, uh, with an army team that was just going around the country basically to major hospitals and being like, what equipment do you have? What equipment do you need? How can we facilitate getting, you know, equipment from Port-au-Prince to, you know, kind of the rest of the island um, and, you know, just kind of logistically, how does that look? So it was very different than like, you know, the, the combat rotations that I'd been a part of. Um, but it was, it was definitely rewarding. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where if you think all a controller does is just drop bombs everywhere, like, no, you you can set up a, a an airfield in austere area, uh, and and kind of like do the job of a friggin' airport mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah. So there was uh you know a handful of us that were down there, and we were actually sitting on this like makeshift uh plastic table, you know, running an entire an entire airfield for for two weeks with handheld radios. <laughs> you know, I mean it's. Yeah. It's kind of cool that we have that capability and, you know, the, the, um, and it's interesting because in the news just recently, there was another earthquake in Haiti and controllers are down there again, um, providing humanitarian support. So, yeah. um, yeah, but you know, in addition to running the airfield, we were also, you know, surveying drop zones and then land in, you know, container bundles full of, uh, humanitarian goods. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a good mission good core mission of combat control i guess is it kind of like refreshing what year was that uh 2010 was it like refreshing to get that kind of deployment in between kind of 
going back to back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, at the same time though, it was it was also kind of um, it was heartbreaking, man. Like these people, like they they already don't have a whole lot, and then you have an earthquake come through, and just seeing like the devastation, like. They don't have the same building codes and stuff in Haiti that they do in the United States. So yeah. I think there was a lot more damage there from the natural disaster that would have occurred in like a more developed country. But, you know, just seeing like the total devastation and then, you know, people that are just struggling and it was good to be able to provide, you know, so- somewhat of a relief to them. Yeah. I think those kinds of trips always give you like a greater appreciation. Like I, you know, I, happen to believe the more i travel the rest of the world the more i appreciate where i'm from oh absolutely i i always say this every time i go overseas it's like america appreciation day you know anytime that i'm gone like i'm always yeah. like man america's still the best <laughs> yeah and it doesn't have to even be like afghanistan it could like you know i lived in germany for three years and when i when i would come back to the states i would like oh man you know this is my country is mm-hmm. free you know yep you want to uh, fast forward to March 2013? Yeah. So <laughs> good day for Team America, bad day for me. <laughs> yeah. But it was, no, it was it was good, man. Like, I just remember, you know, I'm being on a helicopter, like, stuff going down. And uh, just having, like, just so much adrenaline. I remember getting off the helo and like sprinting around the front of it and get it, you know, just being like way up there. And then, yeah, boom. Yeah. You know, I got, I got shot in the hip, shattered my hip, severed my static nerve. And, uh, you know, I was, I was just in a bad way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you've been shot before, but I heard you say you didn't really notice at that time. This time, definitely. Yeah. So this time, you know, as soon as I got hit, like, I just remember the, you know, we were Peltors, you know, sound muffling and communication devices overhead. But I just remember the sound of the bullet striking my bone and it was just so loud. And, you know, I remember being like, oh, shit, I'm shot. I need to get behind cover now. And I remember trying to take a step with my right leg and just collapsing right there because there was no support there. Um, and then I got on the radio right away and I was like, you know, this is call sign, uh, whatever to call sign. And, you know, I, I've been hit and need some help here. And uh, remember, they got over to me and I was still trying to do my job. And, uh, you know, one of the medics cut cut my microphone and I'm sure they were talking bad things about me, but <laughs> it was probably good that I didn't hear it. What's fentanyl like? Uh, so I remember I put the first, the first lollipop in and I was like, man, this isn't, this isn't working for me. Like I need, I need something else. And so then they gave me two. So I had two fentanyl lollipops. And then I remember getting on the helicopter, being all packaged up, um, and then landing at the base, um, and getting off the helo and having everyone kind of meet me there, you know, to, to go do surgery and make sure everything's okay. And I remember talking to them and being like, I need some better pain meds. And I remember putting them the mat, put them putting a mask on and they're like, just count backwards from 10. And it was like 10, nine, eight and done. And then, uh, I, everything is pretty hazy from there for the next couple of days. Like just, you know, lots of sleep and lots of, uh, pain medications. Yeah. Were you like kind of just dream world and then now I'm in Germany and then yeah, uh, now exactly. I'm back in the States and yeah. is and it 
because I, I mean, talking to other guys who've done the, you know, evac route, it seems like it just sucks so bad because you're kind of like out of your wits mm-hmm. with every, all your procedures and, and pain management and like anesthesia for surgeries yep. that's going on. Yeah. So it was, uh, I mean, it was just super cloudy. Like I don't really have a mentally clear moment from really any of that. Like it didn't really dwell on me that how significant my injury was until I was at Walter Reed. You know, I think I was about three weeks into my Walter Reed stay when, um, when I started to kind of come off some of the more intense pain meds and kind of, you know, gathered a little bit more awareness about my surroundings. And then, um, you know, just kind of discovering what was going on with my leg and, you know, coming to terms with the permanency of the injury. Um, you know, that didn't happen completely until a little bit later, but I think I was starting to realize that, you know, this wasn't something that you could just rub dirt on and, and be better. Hey everyone, here's Matt with a quick break in the action to uh, tell some of our new or even some of our returning listeners about how to support the show. Uh, Quickly, want to say thank you for rejoining us. Ben and I took uh, somewhat of an unannounced uh, summer vacation, uh, and so we're happy to be back and happy to have you with us. If you want to find out more about the show, our website is quite predictably thankyounowwhat.com. If you head over there, we have our entire backlog of episodes and descriptions. Pick the one you want uh, or just start from the beginning. There are links to our Twitter and our Instagram. Um, We update a little more on Instagram. You can find some audiograms there, some more content about the show. Uh, We have a link for our T-shirt on our website if you're that into us. You can use a feedback form on the website or email us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com for any show feedback. Uh, we try to read them all. We can't respond to them all. Um, we actually had some like requests for uh, other guests, and uh, we are trying to fill those for you guys. So um, we'll do what makes sense for the show. Anyway, get a, give us your feedback. We love it. We read it all. Sorry if we haven't responded. If you really like what we're doing with the show and you want to contribute, uh, you're going to see some links on the website for PayPal and for Patreon. Uh, PayPal, you can submit a one-time or a recurring amount. And then Patreon is a subscription service that starts at just a dollar an episode, um, but gets that uh, kind of recurring engagement. You can click the link or head to patreon.com slash thank you now what to see more. Um, recently Ben and I held a, uh, zoom, uh, meeting with some of our patrons and some of our former guests. That was pretty fun. Let us know, uh, what else you would like to, um, be getting from the Patreon. If you decide to show up, we're open to suggestions. Please know that when you share with us in the cost of doing business, whether it's PayPal, Patreon, or you slip me a 10 at the bar, whatever doesn't go straight to production costs for the show does get redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. And our commitment is to spend at least more than half uh, of your money redirected to causes that we really believe in. Just a little bit on production. It's not free. 
Uh, you can get a good idea of what those organizations are by visiting the nonprofits page on our website. Uh, each one is either run by people we've had on the show uh, or named for people that we've uh, known or uh, are involved with. Expect this list to grow over time. Uh, very sincere thank you to everybody who not only supports us in those ways, but anybody who's there sharing or just even listening to one episode. We're very humbled that you enjoy our show enough to do so. If you are enjoying the show, please make sure that you are subscribed to the feed on your favorite podcast player. Uh, we also appreciate if you give us a rating or a review. Rating, just tap the number of stars and uh, review if you want to tell other people how great we are. Finally, the simplest thing you can do is tell someone about the show so we can keep spreading by word of mouth the most effective form of advertising. One last thing before I get back to the episode is that uh, the Coast to Coast Ride for the Fallen, number eight, the Ocho, is currently going on. Uh, as I record this voiceover, I am returning from our charity hockey game in Vegas, which was a blast. And I think that the ride is either uh, somewhere in uh, New Mexico or Texas. So it'll be a little further along when you get to listen. Anyway, it's an incredible organization run by a bunch of amazing uh, people, many of which per I'm personally friends with and named in honor of uh, Ryan Savard, who I was uh, personal friends with, I had the honor of uh, being friends with him. So if you are uh, so inclined, now would be the perfect time to go check them out at coastxcoast.org to find out more about the foundation uh, and more importantly, to donate. You can also find them on Instagram at CXC Foundation to follow the ride live. Uh, and they're all over other social media. Coastxcoast.org. Anyway, been a while long-winded with uh, today's support segment, but happy to have everybody back and uh, looking forward to the next set of episodes with you all. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to Zach. How long after you're, Walt you're at Walter Reed do you kind of like, I guess, is there an anxiety that sets in where... Like you had been shot before you'd been in an IED, but now you're like, fuck, this one's a little different. Yeah. So like I might not be returning to duty quicker at all. Yeah, it was it was really slow progress for me because I had a non-union fracture of my femur. Um, so for over a year, I was either on crutches or in a wheelchair and I was kind of I was really it was a very depressing point in my life where I was measuring my life in increments of three months. And every three months would be when I would go back to go see my ortho doc and looking for clearance that I could do weight bearing on my leg. And, you know, the first time I went, it was like, okay, all right, another three months, no big deal. Well, obviously, you know, that kept going on for, for a year and it was just kind of a, a, a difficult spot to be in, you know, watching your teammates go out and still go do good things and being a part of, you know, I was still a part of the unit, but I was doing, you know, spending a lot of time at home because, you know, other than physical therapy, they're, they're really, and the amount of painkillers that I was on, I just wasn't in a good spot to be able to provide a whole lot of services at that point. So, um, you know, that was frustrating, like ha not really having a purpose and then just dealing with a healing process, both physically, 
mentally and um you know it all kind of came came to a point um where i was in a really dark place for a little bit and um you know the narcotics that i was on um they weren't helping me doing me any favors and i was on a bunch of different meds for nerve pain and uh you know i always see the commercial of one of the meds that i was on it's like if you have suicidal thoughts or ideology then you should probably get off this medication well i definitely had that so um you know it's uh it's one of those one of those things that i'm glad that i experienced that like i know what rock bottom looks like for me now and i i also know um the resiliency of of my own personal self to be like when i got to that point that i was able to self-identify and, and you know i'm pretty fortunate for that that it, you know i was able to um realize that these medications were impacting me significantly and i decided that i was just going to self-wean off the meds after everything kind of came to came to that bottom point and that was a that was another rough you know three weeks of my life where you know, I was on max dosages of a lot of different meds and I was like, fuck it, I'm not taking any of these anymore. And so yeah, I just wrote it out um, on the couch for about three weeks before I started to feel myself again. What was it? I mean, what's it like being in a wheelchair when you're like friggin' G.I. Joe? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I already asked that, but like, I know when people get injured, it's it's one thing healing the injury but there's so much under the surface and you started to talk about that too. Like which part was harder? I think just the dependency um, that I had on other people, like, you know, everyone in the military is very self-sufficient. Like, you know, you're, you go from jumping out of airplanes, jumping off of helicopters, you know, running and gunning and, and doing these these cool things um that take a lot of you know high high caliber fitness and uh, you know just um uh a good kind of like mental foundation where like you know where you're experiencing these high highs and low lows in such a short period of time um you just have to have kind of like this mental like elasticity i guess and um you know when when I was on my meds and recovering, like, I don't think I had that. Like, I think it was, uh, where there was just a lot of stuff kind of weighing on me and I focused on it. And the more you focus on it, the harder it is to see kind of, you know, what's the good that came out of any of this, you know? And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah. <laughs> what I will get into like career change shortly here but like up to this point had you seen yourself as anything other than what your job already was no so that was that's the thing with the military it's like when when people ask you you know what your job is well yeah my job was that but being a military member is it's it's more of a lifestyle like it's all-encompassing like you don't even though you take off the uniform at the end of the day or whatever like it doesn't mean that you're not in the military so like when you're no longer able to do the things that you were doing, you know, it makes you question your self-worth a little bit, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you have to redirect and find a new purpose, which was kind of the biggest thing, um, for me was, was to focus on, you know, what's next, how do I get better? How do I, you know, 
I still didn't know at this point that um, my leg wasn't going to rehab the way that I wanted to wanted it to. So I stayed really motivated, worked really hard trying to get back to operational status. But with the leg, it just you know I would have been uh, been a liability on on any team. So what options were? I guess, technically available to you. And when do you start evaluating that against, you know, forging a life, a life, (laughs) a career outside the military? Yeah. So that, that was tricky. Like within the air force, there was a policy that once you go to so can't jump, um, for over a year period, then they have to initiate a medical evaluation board. Once you kind of stabilize in your condition, And so I, you know, I didn't really have an option. All of a sudden there was a med board in front of me and I was going through it. And, you know, I was kind of angry at the time because it was like, you know, this is all I know. This is my whole identity. Like, you know, this is who I am. I'm, you know, I'm a military member and, um, you know, it's, it's looking like this is going to be taken away from me on circumstances that, that I didn't get to dictate, you know, I didn't get to choose when my last deployment was, or, you know, when, when when it was time to hang up that hat. But um, I think one of the good things that came out of it, um, you know, since we're kind of alluding to life after the military was for me was that I was fortunate enough to find something that I thought I could be passionate in while I was still serving. So just doing the physical rehab, doing the, um, you know, working with my physical therapist, um, I, I developed a passion for being in that environment and I hope that, or I hope that I could help maximize someone's quality of life after receiving an injury. And that's what kind of drove me towards like wanting to be a physical therapist was like, how do we get this guy or gal or whoever that has suffered an injury? How do we get them to improve their quality of life and maybe help them find, you know, some, some better self-worth themselves. I listened to a couple other podcast that you've been on one was kind of war stories so and fast forward that through. yeah the other one was actually really interesting it was like a podcast for physical therapists you had nothing but incredible things to say about the pt that you had at the time uh but you made a lot of comments around like she wasn't just treating your injuries she was treating your mind she was working through you know purpose with you and you you also talked about you were you were very focused on long-term goals and she was able to break it down into something that, you know, you could, you could handle that day. Also challenging you, you just kind of recap that for us or, 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 you know, how meaningful a relationship with your PT can be. Yeah. So I, you know, PTs are in a really unique position where you spend a lot more time with a patient than other medical professionals often do. So even though like they don't do a whole lot of psychological training or schooling, which by the way, I think would be great to implement into PT programs because of how much time you spend with people. And because, you know, a lot of these people, they may just find that you're the one medical provider for that for whatever reason, maybe it's because they're doing exercise or they're focused on other things that they might open up to you. And I think you need to be prepared to talk about things with your patients, you know, and and for me, like that was absolutely the case. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to seek out mental health, but I also had some things on my mind that I wanted to talk about. And because I was there seeing the therapist every day and the relationship that I had with her, like it ended up being that she 
was doing much more than just treating my physical injury. I think the mental aspect is huge because it's such a part of your identity that you have to heal the mind when the body is not doing what you want it to. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you're not in a spot mentally, like that can actually delay your physical healing. So it's amazing how much like how powerful the mind is. You know, if you want to get better and you're striving to get better, you'd like to think that it would be just this linear process and that timelines be as they are like, you know, like, oh, six weeks in a bone will heal. Well, what happens when it's a year? And then how do you manage that with a patient, you know? So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it is tough to, to try and be a holistic healthcare provider. You also said something about you had a doctor tell you, well, get out of the wheelchair because your bone's not going to heal sitting down. Yeah. Did I so, get that right? Or uh, So after about the year mark, we got to the point where it was like, okay, we're running out of options here. It's not healing on its own. Maybe we need to try like weight bearing in, you know, some, some reduced capacity. So I ended up using this fancy treadmill called an Alter-G and, you know, it offloads the amount of weight that's going through your body. And, you know, I just started walking on that. And it's pretty amazing because as soon as I implemented um, or was kind of cleared to implement that, that going forward, the bone, it, it healed. So in a, in a short period. So it, you know, why, why did it take so long to make that decision? You know, I don't know, but I wasn't the doctor making those decisions. You know, you did some like nerve graphs too. And that's, is that the thing that was like holding back your functionality? So the nerve graphs were like my last like cling to hope that I could somehow maybe this would heal and that I would get back to operational status. And, you know, they kind of gave me a five year mark that if you don't see any any gains after five years, then, you know, you're not going to see any gains. But um, the one good thing about the nerve graft procedure was the reduction in pain that I had. So once they did the cadaver graft, my nerve pain significantly decreased. So that was a, a really good outcome from that. But as far as like gaining any more function um, with a with the paralyzed leg, like I didn't get any back. But for a while there, I was clinging on to a little little shimmer of hope that I'd be able to walk again, you know, without an assist, assistive device. Yeah. Is this just what you have right now? Is this what you're rolling with? Or do you have like another one that yes. you had one that went all the way up to the hip at some so, point, right? Yeah, this one does too. So it actually goes up to about mid thigh. So there's a knee attachment to it, but it's called an IDEO device. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not, it's not perfect. Um, but it helps me, it helps me do everything that I need to be able to do throughout the day. And it's allowed me to function at a higher capacity than what I thought that I would get to when I was, you know, in the wheelchair and, and kind of dealing with, with all with everything like i i definitely exceeded my expectations my personal expectations for rehab yeah well when i came over you're walking your kid down the stairs and if, if you weren't wearing shorts like you know, it would look totally natural so yeah now you know being eight and a half years after the shot you know mm -hmm. it's uh can only imagine what those eight and a half years are like um but you know happy to see yeah yeah, I think I'm able to get up and get around and move things. I got pretty strong opinions about stairs and the beach nowadays. But other than that, like, I, I'm pretty good at, uh, I'm certainly not running anywhere, but. Um, the beach, because uh, 
Yeah, sand. the sand. The sand. I just don't do well walking on uneven surfaces with it. But Oh, one big thing is you decide to get married after injury, but before leaving. Yeah. Did you... Did your injury put you in any kind of... Maybe I've teased you about this before, but did it put you in a mindset to make that decision? Uh, so I like to joke about it, that the only reason that I asked my wife to marry me is because I was on ketamine, but it's not totally true, although I was on ketamine when Factually I proposed correct. to her. <laughs> yes, okay. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think when you have a life-changing event like that, it does put things into perspective, and... Um, you know, for me at that point in my life, like we had been dating for a long time and it was all, you know, it was, it was coming. And then everything that Jillian did for me following my injury just kind of cemented the fact that like, this is my person and she's the one that needs to be by my side while I'm going through this. Yeah. Another aspect of transition for a lot of people is education. Is she the one who made you go to community college? Yeah, she is. So I, uh, which I went to community college too. It's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I would highly recommend any military member that's not sure what they want to do in school to take that first step in a smaller classroom. We didn't have all of the distractions of, you know, that can occur on a college campus. I, I feel like it was a, an environment that was free from kind of all that external stuff. And it just allows you to focus on and get started in making that educational journey. And for someone who hasn't done any school, like you can knock out your, your core stuff at a community college and transfer to a bigger university later. If, if it, if it works out for you, you know, like I, I kind of had the idea that to go be a physical therapist and was kind of driven by that, but had my wife not, made me take the first step towards enrolling in classes, like I probably would have delayed that a little bit longer. I think you have to learn how to learn in an academic setting. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, we both had a lot of schooling in the military, but like it's not in a, right. it's not in a classroom. It's not with your regular kind of textbooks, but being able to make that transition into knowing how to be a student is important, which I think not everybody gets. Not everybody knows that that's like a, an actual step that you have to take. Yeah. So it is a big difference, you know, from this, the learning that you do in the military, which is a lot of like hands-on or, you know, while there are like a lot of book stuff that you have to learn, like you're doing other stuff and like putting it to use in a, in a way that's different than reading from a book taking that information and then somehow like retaining it. And, you know, it's for me, like it's a little bit more difficult when you, when you don't do something with the information, when you're not like, right. You know, using it with your hands somehow. It's a lot, it's a bit more abstract. I mean, you get back into the hands-on application, obviously end up in PT school, but in the military, you're kind of like taking something. And then for me as a, SF medic, it's like I re read something and then I would be given kind of like some training scenario where I, okay, here's what I'm supposed to do here. Yep. Um, a lot of academics is like just completely abstract. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. Like, you know, take a uh, microbiology, you know, <laughs> like you can't see these things. Like, you know, we're talking about stuff that like, yeah. it's so small and, uh, you know, it's, 
it makes it hard when you when you can't visualize something and you're trying to deal with something that um, just doesn't necessarily like you don't have any life experience to draw back on or or anything like that. It's you know to to make sense of it. Two years community and then finishing at Chapel Hill and then on to Duke. Yep, Kinda exactly. Like the, uh, North Carolina, you know. <laughs> Hopefully, people, you haven't lost your uh, Wisconsin roots, but you're like the North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, definitely, as far as school goes. Super student. Yeah, don't know who to root for, you know, whether it's Duke or UNC. I mean, I get that asked all the time. A lot of times, I'll wear, like, both colors. I'll have a North Carolina shirt on with a Duke hat, and people are always kind of thrown off by that. (laughs) You go into biology, bio? Yep. Chem, bio, whatever? Uh, Yep, just biology. Okay, cool. And is that a... uh, basically doing like a pre-med you always had your sights on being a dpt yeah so i actually chose my degree based on the fact that there was a lot of um elective courses that i could take that met the requirements to do pt and so that's what got me into that um you know if i was able to redo it i guess i would have you know although it's changed now, but um, a few years ago, you could still do your athletic training in undergrad as an undergraduate degree. And, you know, if, if I could have done that with a little more fore planning, that probably would have been the better route. But, uh, you know, they've made that a master's degree program now, so it doesn't really matter. Nice. I, uh, I don't know if I should say this. I saw some, like, army general uh had his undergrad in uh, physical education and i thought that was great yeah if you weren't an army general you could be a gym teacher yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man you said you did a lot of cross training with pararescue men when you were coming through like cct school or even at your unit before the injury and before your own personal experience with pt had you ever even considered i know i asked like have you considered you know a career after being a controller uh up to that point but with medicine i was an army medic and was like f that <laughs> i am continuing my career in something else yeah had you ever considered uh so no i didn't really it was it was really just my experience with pt and then realizing that my career was coming to an end that it was like well now what and that was the only thing like if if i hadn't had an injury and i got out of the military like i think i would have been a little bit lost at first you know like i was i would consider myself fortunate that i was able to find something that i thought i could be passionate about while i was still serving before that transition took place you know i think uh i think transitioning service members that don't have that next best thing on the horizon and they don't have someone like Jillian pushing them to sign up for classes or to do, you know, um, to, to start their job hunt or, you know, whatever the ne- their next thing is like, well, I would just consider myself grateful that I was able to find that. And I hope that veterans transitioning are able to at least think about it while they're still serving where there's, while they still have some sort of structure in their life. Yeah. I think once uh, once you're done from the military, it's it's a little bit harder. I think I don't know. I don't know if it's a little bit harder um, to find focus. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I I just feel like the structure of the military made it such that it was easier for me to contemplate what's next 
without having like instability in my life, if that makes any sense at all. So like the military was providing stability that uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> I mean, at the very basic uh, level, you're still getting a paycheck. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that if you start planning in advance i think something that very few people do is give themselves enough time to plan mm -hmm. or give themselves you know several different courses of action or fallback plans or i could tell you when i got out i got my personal trainer certification because i was like well if i don't get a gucci ass job in new york while I'm going to undergrad, uh, at least I can tell people how to lift weights mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, keep the bills paid. I actually never have personal trained somebody and it's like <laughs> a tough job and I don't want to do it. Uh, mostly sales. Yeah. Um, cause I, I was kind of this same way up to a certain point. I had only ever wanted to be what my job was and it felt great. But then, uh, you know, I made a choice to leave and I still didn't give it any, like kind of knew what I wanted to study at least what I was like, um, intellectually interested in, but I never, uh, I didn't spend a lot, a lot of time thinking about how that translated to, you know, the job market or employment or anything like career wise. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of, I think I shot from the hip more than I should have. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of people that, Hey, when should I start thinking about this thing? I don't know, probably like two or three years. Yeah, before. definitely. Yep, to try and start lining things up. And, you know, the nice thing about if you decide to go the education route, at least, is there's a little bit of a buffer period there where you don't have to know exactly what you want to be when you grow up, you know, outside of the military. So there's a little bit of time there to kind of get things kind of ironed out and, and planned out. But, um, you know, I think, I think individuals that transition from the military that don't go the education route, you know, now they're trying to, to go from one extreme of military life to one extreme of corporate life. And I think it's, you know, that's a hard adjustment to make, I would think. How tough is it to get into PT school? Uh, I don't know. Cause I got in, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't know how hard it is. Uh, you know, I, I tried, obviously I tried hard. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think when you're, when you're older, the amount of effort that you put towards something and, you know, I think, I think this is something that I took away from my military service, you know, like I obviously like you serve in the military and you, and you provide the military and the government a, a service, but I also think that the military gives you so much as far as like personal growth and development and, for me, it was like, you know, learning. I'll be honest with you. Like if we pulled up my high school transcript, you'd find that it was less than 2.0 cumulative. Uh, so I wasn't a good student in high school. I had no desire to go to school. Um, but then the military kind of transformed like my probably more of just uh, disinterest in school. You know, it, it was able to teach me to always put my best foot forward, even if it's shitty, you know, if, if the bathroom needed to be clean, like, fuck man, like make sure that shit's spotless. You know, that's the type of shit that the military kind of instilled at you in a, in a, in a young age of just doing everything to, to you, to your best ability and to always put your, you know, your, your foot forward. And, um, 
you know, I, um, I was fortunate that I, I put my best foot forward. I took school very seriously and, you know, it, um, I think it made me successful when I went to apply for PT school and, and having a lot of, uh, the, you know, diversity and in background and experience and, and, and all that kind of made me, um, a, a, a good candidate for, for PT. Yeah. I felt the same way. I always thought that school was like a chore when I was younger. And then when I was older, like, yeah, I'm employable without a degree. So why am I here? Yeah. It's to open the next opportunity. Yeah. I had a deeper appreciation for it and worked harder at it than I would have, you know, at a young age. But I mean, I was like, you know, I, was, I signed my enlistment contract. I was like, so I don't have to go to class anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much of you, or I guess you're, like two thirds of the way through right now. Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. I've got um. Uh, so yeah, we finish up in May. We'll uh, be graduation. So cool. How much of it is hands? So it's a three year program. Yep. How much is hands on? And you got a textbook open on your desk right now, <laughs> so I know it's obviously both. Yeah. So there's a fair amount of hands on. Um, you know, obviously with with COVID that kind of changed everything for our program, like where, you know, we were supposed to have labs and be in person and, you know, getting to practice a lot of this stuff. COVID unfortunately kind of took a little bit of the way from us, but you know, now that I'm in the clinic, um, I am getting a lot of that experience, but I think as far as like a baseline level goes, um, people that were going to school for PT, during COVID, like definitely experienced a shortfall when it comes to just having the ability to do the manual therapy stuff. Who do you do? Uh, who do you do your like clinical work with? So this first clinical, um, is right up the road here in Holly Springs. So that's nice. Um, you know, it's close to home. Um, and we have what are called terminal clinical experiences. So you do your first two years of education and then your, your last year is just clinicals. Um, so for this first clinical, I'll finish up here in the next few weeks. And then, um, I'm going to head up to Walter Reed, um, which will be a pretty cool experience for me. I think, you know, trying to make that full circle, like patient and then provider at Walter Reed, like, um, I'm really looking forward to that. You know, how do people, have you worked with athletes at the schools too? Uh, not athletes at the schools. So my my final rotation um, will be in a place where I'm going to be working with a lot of uh, pro athletes. So it'll be interesting to kind of make those comparisons, you know, hopefully learn a lot, you know, from, from seeing different modalities and, um, you know, treating military members and then treating athletes and just getting an idea about the mindset differences, maybe. How do patients, react to your story of injury recovery and like why you're there in person in front of them so i don't think a lot of the patients that i have now have any idea like they're just like oh it's a duke student like in the room and he's going to be doing pt for me so i don't i don't think a lot of people know like my story and i don't, I don't know if it's just uh i think Are you I wear think a long pants a, in front of them yeah, I do wear pants. So yeah, just like, do people even know that? No, you, they don't. You like, got a, until, you got a stanky leg or the, what? The only time they find out I got a stink leg is when uh, 
I try to demo an exercise and I'm like, well, I can't do this because I have this, you know, prosthetic orthotic device. So, you know, unfortunately, um, but then it's like, that's usually where the conversation kind of ends is just a quick, like, yep, I can't demo this because I have this going on. And then, um, occasionally there's, you know, some follow-up questions, but, um, and then usually it's a thanks for your service type of thing. Yeah. Which is always hard to react to. It is. It's part of the reason why we titled the show. Cause yeah. early, earlier you said, you know, now what I, I don't want to seem, uh, like a dick. I get sick of people saying thank for you for your service. I do too. Like, to be honest with you, I volunteered. I wanted to serve. That was the only thing I wanted to do in my life. Like, I don't necessarily need a thank you for it. Like, granted, there are certain days out of the year when maybe you should reach out to a veteran and say thank you for your service. But um, outside of that, it is it is always awkward because it's like, how do you respond to that? Um, and, you know, I would like to be as genuine as they are in saying, you know, well, thank you for your support. But I feel like that's just like a canned line that I use now to to try and move things along. Yeah. I say, I kind of say like, thanks for your patriotism, but you know, it was, it was my pleasure. Yeah. I got to do like some of the coolest shit ever that, you know, if you told me when I was 12 years old, I might've not believed you. Yeah. No, it was absolutely like everything that I dreamt the military to be like, as much as I built that up in my mind, the, um, leading into joining the military, like it completely exceeded my expectations for like how, how awesome of a job it could be. Um, which is why I think it's so hard to leave it, especially when it's not on your terms, you know, like, but, and then it's hard to find something that's going to fill the void of those, like, you know, the, just the speed at which our job was and, you know, the constant adrenaline and, you know, just being around like-minded people that are just pushing you to be better every day. Um, I think that's, I think it's, you know, I, I have, I don't have a lot of experience in the civilian world, but I think that's going to be hard to find no matter where I go is finding people that are that driven to make you better. Um, and just like the, the altruistic kind of behaviors that a lot of military members have, you know, like, do good because it is good and it makes you feel good. Yeah. I, uh, ask on every show this question, who are you today? If you never served, I think we've covered a lot of it, but yeah. what, how does oh, that man. question make you feel? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, if you know, like if you're asking like, what would my life look like without the military right now? Cause or, I never really thought about it before one day in the shower or yeah. driving, you know? Yeah. That's a hard one to answer, man, because I, uh, you know, at, at 17, 18 senior high school, like, I don't, I don't think I had the drive, um, that I, that I got once I joined the military, like the, the military really made me a driven person and an on task person and, you know, kind of set the agenda for me. But, um, you know, like I said, I was, less than a 2.0 student and I was, you know, just kind of skating by. So I don't know. I don't know what my life would look like without the military. It's a tough one to answer. Probably milking cows somewhere, you know, doing a Wisconsin <laughs> thing. 
still still waiting to be able to see the ocean. Yeah, still waiting to see the ocean. Oh, they got the Great Lakes, pretty much the same thing. Yeah, you can't see the other side, right? <laughs> what's the uh, what's the post graduation goal? Where do you where do you want to be? So I have a desire to go back to my previous unit and work there. And it's some of it is for selfish reasons. Some of it is because like, I just believe in the mission and the people and whatever else. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I foresee myself going. Like I like the military mindset. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're working with veterans, um, or active duty that, you know, have kind of experienced some of these, these injuries that take them out of, out of the fight for a little while, like they're really driven to get back to it. Whereas like, you know, in the civilian world, um, you know, let's just say hypothetically, for example, someone comes into you for an injury, they got hurt on the job and now they're on workers comp and, you know, they might, they may not want to get better. Um, you know, you're just dealing with different mentalities. Um, the high performer. Yes, exactly. And that's one thing that, at least in the special operations world. And, uh, you know, it just, it just attracts really high achievers, high, high performers, high energy and people that are able to self-motivate and be driven. And, you know, when it comes to rehab and getting back out there, you know, they, they realize that if it's not them, then someone else on the team or another team is going to have to take their position. And, uh, you know, no one wants to be in that spot. You know, you want to be the guy that's there doing the thing, doing the mission. So you, the the desire to get better is, is, you know, deeply embedded in them. Yeah. I also think there'll be a huge benefit for all the non, you know, all the, all the ancillary stuff that we talked about before, right? I can go to someone who's going to give me the best physical treatment, but being able to relate to somebody like you who has been through, you know, actually been through the physical stuff. Yes. That ha carries a lot of weight, but been through the mental stuff, had their job, understands their purpose. Like, you know, think that all pay off in spades. Yeah. I hope so. You know, I hope that, um, you know, it's always weird when you're like, Oh, I hope my story inspires other people because I don't really feel that like, I have necessarily like a story, you know, when it's, when it's you and you're just living and you're just waking up every day, you don't feel like that your life is a story. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just hope that like, if, if people do find some inspiration or something from, from my past and my history that, um, you know, that, that does motivate them to, to, to do, to do better, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, I remember, Personally, I don't know if this came off a, a crossing conversation, but when you got shot the last time, you know, I was on the next ridge, maybe hundred meters away from you heard you say, you know, I'm shot and, and, uh, you know, we'd been buddies before that. And, and since, uh, you know, a couple days later, I just thought like, couldn't have been 24 hours earlier. I saw you in the gym doing some like crazy Olympic lifting. I wanted you to get out of the squat rack so I could do some curls, but <laughs> yeah. no. Um, and I just thought like, oh, that sucks. He's done doing that for a while. Yeah. 
but hearing you, you know, on another show is like you've persisted and, and found ways to deal with what you were dealt. And even if it comes down to like modifying an exercise or maybe like redefining success for yourself or chunking up a big goal into shorter term goals. Um, also heard about you kind of going back to the gym at work and fuck, if I'm looking at Zach working out, like I need to start working out a little harder too. Yeah. Right. But like the, the way that you dealt with, you know, modified either your life or, or, or being able to like stay physically fit. Like you look good, dude. Thanks buddy. Yeah. Um, I've always appreciated that you're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, buddy, you got to get out. We need a little bit more time. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Uh, Be like, hey, your time's up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right, man. We'll uh, we'll cut it. Sounds good. Well, I hope I gave you some decent content. I felt like I was rambling. Like, I feel like I would start a concept in my mind and, like, know about three quarters of what I wanted to say. And then I'd get to the end and I'd be like, I don't know where I was going with it. Uh, You know we've interviewed Nate, right? (laughs) Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Zach improving people's lives by rehabilitating their bodies and their minds. As always, aim high. I mean, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.